Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good? Awesome. All right, we've got a few announcements before we dive into Exodus 28, but uh, we've got kids also, kids. Y'all are dismissed. Y'all go ahead. Give a big thank you to all the people that serve in kids' ministry. They are awesome. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys can hear that back there, but thank you so much for all you do. Uh, family reunion is next week, so we'll be coming together to do um, a, a meal together and then share a little bit of what God has done in some of the people in our church's lives. Uh, Greg and Debbie will be sharing their testimony next weekend, so that's going to be really awesome. So come out and enjoy a meal with us next weekend. Uh, and then also next week, we are going to be uh, celebrating our graduates. So if you graduated in December, if you're graduating in like, how many weeks is it, guys? Two weeks. You're ready, aren't you? You're ready. Yeah, so if you're graduating in two weeks, uh, and then also if you're graduating in the summer. So I know there's some weird people walking in the summer. Not weird people walking in the summer. Um, some weirdness of the walking of the summer. If you're doing that, we would also love to celebrate you. There's a sign-up link that's been uh, in the email that's been going out. Please sign up so we can make sure we have a gift for you for that. Uh, the other thing that we have is on May 14th, we'll be gonna, we're going to be doing family dedication. Uh, so if you have had a child and you would like to commit with our church to raise them up in the way of Christ, uh, we would love for you to sign up for family dedication as we do that during the service. So all good. We've got family reunion, graduation celebration, and family dedication. All right. Now I'm going to settle down and pray, and we're going to dive into Exodus 28. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone that is here today. Uh, thank you that your word goes before us, that you speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would see your glory in these priestly garments that we're about to study. Lord, and that we would be drawn to worship you more and more. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your son Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. So, uh, before we go into Exodus 28, there are kind of three tiers of observations that we're going to be looking at. And those three things are um, function, glory, and beauty. Function, glory, and beauty in Exodus 28. So, if you're flipping your way there, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of talk about what function, glory, and beauty are. What is the function of these garments, right? So this is, uh, Moses is getting the instructions on how to make these garments. That's what we're going to be studying today. But the function of these garments are a lot more like a uniform, meant to be worn by the priest, not every single day, all the time, but just as he is doing the duties in the tabernacle. This isn't Aaron and his son's permanent clothes. A lot more like a uniform for work. Right? There's bells on the bottom so that people can hear them doing work, reminding them that God is working on their behalf uh, when they were being represented before God. The garments have a specific function. Right? These are, they serve as a symbol to be showing the people of God, the glory of God, and then to show and remind God of the promise that He has made to His people. Right? So there's going to be names written on a lot of these stones that are going to serve a purpose, right? So there's function in the uniform. Uh, and next week, we're going to look at 
the consecration process that these priests who are wearing these garments, what they had to go through. But today we're going to be specifically looking at the garments. So we talked about function, right? This is, it is for a purpose. Uh, the other thing that the, the text is going to continue to repeat is that they have glory, that they were to be made in glory and beauty. So glory, it's a, a term kind of meaning weight or the burden uh, the physical weight of these garments, as you're going to see, it's going to feel like it's going to be pretty heavy, right? There's lots of metal. There's lots of stones, lots of twine, and it's going to be a heavy thing. It's going to remind the priest of the, uh, the actual thing that's going on spiritually, right? So it's not just uh, something that's happening that's, that looks apart, but the glory, the weight of the actual garment is to remind them of the weight of something that's going on spiritually. So there's glory in that, and uh, it sets the priest apart. It distinguishes him as a mediator, right? So this isn't closed for everybody. This isn't closed for all the time. This is closed for the priest, and it's to set him apart so that they would know that one man represents the many, right? So that's the glory and the beauty. Uh, the last time I was up here, I talked a lot about the beauty of the tabernacle. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time in the beauty section of, uh, of today, but let's just, as a reminder, this priest, as he's wearing these gorgeous, beautiful clothes, he's going to be representing the beauty of God to the people of God, right? Uh, and it's just a small picture of the immeasurable value and beauty that God has in himself. All right, so with that, function, glory, beauty, we're going to read Exodus 28. We're going to take some stops along the way uh, so that we're taking some breaths of fresh air. This is a, it's a nice little chunk. Here we go. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among, among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled, whose I, God, who I, God, have filled with a spirit of skill. All right, so we're going to pause right here. I love this so, so much. Right? God has filled these people with the ability to do the thing which will bring God glory and bring people close to Him. Who gave the people the ability? God, right? God gave them the skills that they needed to do to do the work that He's asking them to do. Let that sink in. This reminds us of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, this is verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saves us by his grace, and he's made us to be his masterpieces who do work for our master. So this brings dignity to not just the kind of work that we, we do up here or up here or even at the tech booth. But this brings dignity to all kinds of work. I'm going to try not to leave anybody out. So 
whether you work in installing speakers, managing someone's social media account, laying tile, pouring lattes, playing with people's dogs, making sure our tax money gets spent on the right things, uh, raising children, changing diapers, building cabanas, drawing pictures, drawing blood, helping students figure out what to do with their life, making fudge, coaching tennis or basketball. God has given you the ability to do it for His glory. He gave you the ability to do the work that you're doing for His glory. I think sometimes we get really frustrated with the kind of work that we're, we've been tasked to do. Like, you don't like the season of life that you're in. But God says, I'm calling you to that time to do that thing for me, for my glory, for my purposes, so that you can bring many sons to repentance. Right? God has called you to the place and time that you are in to bring him glory. All the skillful whom he has filled with the spirit of skill. Um, Eugene Peterson summarizes up Colossians 3, 22 through 25 like this, and I think this is a, a really good thing for us to hold on to. Don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does, who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. Do the work that you've been given with the skills that God has given you to do them and do it for the glory of God. All right. So, we're going to pick up in verse 4. And then, if you don't mind, there should be a picture of a man A.A. Ron, up here. There he is. Awesome, thanks. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make a holy garment for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. All right, so take a break for a second. These garments are covering the high priest, right? He's only got a couple of spots that are not covered, right? So it's like his face, his hands, and his feet are not covered. He is completely covered in this glory and beauty. Interestingly enough, the high priest that we have, Jesus Christ, he didn't wear these clothes, right? He was he was stripped of his clothes when he, was make, when he made the final sacrifice for us. He did not need to portray beauty and glory on the outside because he was holy and beautiful and glorious. He was perfect. He didn't need a symbol of glory and beauty on him. He himself was glory and beauty. The priest needs the symbol. The priest needs the covering because he was not the ultimate high priest. But Jesus, our high priest, his body, him in and of himself, was perfect. He did not need to be covered because he is our covering, right? The priest of Aaron and Aaron's sons, they needed to be covered because they did not have perfect righteousness, and this was a symbol of that covering. So verse 6, 
They shall make the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and a fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it, of gold and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. This is the tribes of Israel being written on the high priest. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. We're going to keep going. You shall make settings of gold filigree in two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords. You shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephah, you shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle, that's my favorite, shall be the first row. In the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And on the third row, a jacinth, and a gate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. If you zoned out while I was reading that, this is the big point for today. The high priest is representing the tribes of Israel before God. Right? So if you look at Aaron up here, He's got the stones on his shoulders. He's got the stones on his chest. He is bearing the names of the people that he's taking before God. As he walks into the temple, he's literally reminded of the people that he's going in for, right? He has the names of Israel on his chest, on his heart, and on his shoulders. And he's taking their sins so that God will remember his covenant with the people. The high priest's role was to take the people of God before God, that they would be his people and he would be their God. Verse 22, you shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of the filigree, and so attach it in front of the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on the, in, on the inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam, there we go, above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. Pause. Why all these instructions, right? 
This is a daily thing, right? So remember, it's not their permanent clothes, right? They're taking this off, they're putting it back on, and then they're also traveling around in the wilderness. So, hey, where does this go? How does this work? How are we putting this together each time when they're putting it back onto the high priest? They want to do it right. They want to do it with the, uh, the, the right definitions, putting everything in its right place so that he would represent the people of Israel to God the way that God desired him to represent the people. Does that make sense? So when we're thinking about all these details, it's like, wait, man, why? It's like, well, just remember that these guys are traveling around the desert with this tabernacle, trying to figure out how to put all these things together over and over again, right? So this is those instructions for not just making the pieces, but how do you put it on every single time, right? All right, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the son of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the Lord of the people, shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. All right. Here we are again. The high priest takes the people of God with him before God so that he would remember the covenant that he has made with them. Right? And then God judges the people of Israel rightly with grace and mercy because he has said, you will be my people and I will be your God. Right? So the people are on his heart, are on his chest, they're on his shoulders. And John Calvin has said this about this part of the scripture. He says, we must remember the reason why our high priest is said to bear us on his shoulders. For we not only crawl on earth, but we are plunged in the lowest depths of death. How then should we be able to ascend to heaven unless the Son of God should raise us up with him? I want you to imagine actually being on the shoulders. Calvin continues, now, since there is no ability in us unto eternal life, but all our powers of mind and body lie prostrate, we must be borne up by His strength alone. Hence then arises our confidence of ascending to heaven because Christ raises us up with Him. And as Paul says, we sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What he's saying here is that Christ bears us on His shoulders. In the same manner that the tribes of Israel were on the shoulders of the high priest, because we have been raised by Christ, no merit of our own, our high priest must carry us on his shoulders, not just walk next to us walking out of the grave, right, but to literally carry us. Let that sink in. Jesus, our high priest, carries us to the Father. He carries us. If we're honest with ourselves, often we like to think that God chose us because there was something admirable about us. That God saved us because there was something in us that he said, I like that and I want to save that about you when we have the imagery of being on his shoulders, there's no more room 
to think that we have anything to offer to God. He's carrying us like a crying toddler on our shoulders with no strength. The only thing that could get us out of the grave was his life and righteousness. And he picks us up and he carries us out. And he's not mad about it. Jesus isn't mad to be your high priest. He's not frustrated that he had to come and do it. He did it gladly. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He bore you on his shoulders happily, with joy. He brought you out of the grave, and he bears you on his shoulders. Man, that's good news. Verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head. This is just really practical, guys, right? This is really, really practical stuff. An opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in the garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Uh, it's not, not physical, not like literal fruit pomegranates. I had to study that this week and figure out, it's like, all right, we tie an actual fruit to, to this robe? No, it's like just how they would talk about sphericals. So there we go. So pomegranate, a golden ball, belt, and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. That's what we're talking about, function. Shall be on him when he ministers, and the sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he does not die. He shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban, it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. All right. Breathe. There we go. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. So this is where we get in the, the dichotomy. He's still up there of the, the blue and the white, right? So the blue would be that, that ephod that we just did that long talk about. And then the, the fine linen is that white underneath. It's so that he's covered up completely. Uh, it's like the undergarment and the turban. They're a vision of, uh, the turban are a vision of purity, right? So that he is, he is seen to be a symbol of the mediator that is pure, uh, now, it was definitely a symbol. The priest knew this because he even would make sacrifices on his own behalf before he would step into the temple, right? So this is a symbol of purity, uh, and it points us to our true mediator, Christ, who was sinless and did not need these clothes to tell us of his purity. Verse 40, for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh, 
They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, original boxer briefs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. All right, we did it. That was awesome. So, a really cool observation that uh, I saw on a, there's a guy named Mike Winger. He has a YouTube channel called The Bible Thinker. Uh, and he, he pointed this out. He said, what was hidden in the tabernacle was on display on the high priest. What was hidden in the tabernacle was on display in the high priest. Who could go into the tabernacle? The high priest and the priests, right? So all that beauty that we talked about weeks ago was for who to see? The priests. So how was everybody else going to experience the beauty of God? It's through the priest. So as the priest walks out, he's wearing the same kind of colors and the same kind of things that are on display inside the tabernacle. He walks out, and he is the presence of God among the people. He is showing them what it looks like inside, where they believe to be the presence of God, the glory and the beauty of the tabernacle, when they looked at the high priest, it was there on him. And that points us to Jesus, the fullness of the presence of God. When he walked this earth as our great high priest, he was the dwelling of God with man, Emmanuel, God with us. You see that? That the priest, wearing the same stuff as what's inside the tabernacle, is this great picture of heaven on earth and heaven, God dwelling with his people. Let's go to Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, He's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. This is talking about the priests that aren't Jesus, Aaron and his sons. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God, when called by God, just as Aaron was. But Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin because he never sinned. That is why he was able to take all of our sin to the cross, to the grave, and to be risen up. So what? There's a lot of information. A lot of robes, ephods, skills, linen, blue, scarlet, gold, rocks, lots of stuff, lots of knowledge. So what? What do we do with a high priest who empathizes with us and bears our names before God? I want to press in 
right here for a minute. And if you have stopped listening at any point, this is when I want you to listen. There's a lot of stuff in this passage that can stir our minds and our affections for God's Word. What I really want you to see is what does it mean for Jesus to be our great high priest? We just read it. He sympathizes with us because he was tempted. He did not fail, and he loves you. But sometimes, I think we take our belief in the goodness of Jesus as our high priest and the theology of him being all-loving and all-powerful and all-knowing way too far. I think we sit back with our beautifully crafted theology and we get lazy. We sing a song like Sovereign Over Us, which is a beautiful song, one of my favorite songs. We say that his plans are still to prosper. He's sovereign over us. We say, all right, God's in charge. Now I just get to sit and let God be in charge. We let our good theology make us lazy. So let's pause for a second. Anybody like dogs in here? Yeah, a lot of dog-loving people, at least people that have dogs. Those are not always the same. Um, So on Friday night, it was like really stormy at our house. We had really bad thunderstorms at our house. And I was reminded of something in the middle of the night, is that my dog has a lot of faith in me, right? I don't know what your house was like, but we had like the loudest kind of thunder and the longest lightning flashes going through our windows. And it wasn't like two minutes, or it it might have lasted two minutes, but I think it lasted like an hour. It felt like it lasted an hour. Anyways, the dog is apparently terrified of the flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder that it speaks about in Revelation. And she thinks that because I have unique equipment, thumbs, and ability to provide food for her, that uh, I have some magical power to stop the lightning and thunder, which we don't. Um, So she comes into the house, into the room in the middle of the night, and she thinks I'm awesome. She wakes me up. Uh, If you've ever heard my dog, she sounds like Dory making whale noises. Um, Yeah, you've all just done it in your head. That's what she sounds like. And she cries out to Amanda and I and asks us to fix it. But all we can do is say, get up here and cuddle up. It's going to be okay. But she doesn't just trust us and think on the couch out in the middle, in the living room and say like, oh, mom and dad are going to handle it. They're going to make the lightning go away. All I have to do is sit back and relax. They're in charge. She doesn't think that she can just be scared and terrified and that her humans are going to take care of her. What trust looks like for my dog is what I think trust should look like for us. The belief in the sovereignty of God should look like going to Him, crying out to Him, cuddling up into Him, and saying, God, save me. To get up into the throne room of God, the throne of grace that Hebrews calls it, Trust doesn't look like relaxation. Trust looks like clinging to God. Our Christ-centered theology should not lead us to not practice our faith just because we know that Jesus has gone in for us, bearing our names on his heart and interceding for us. 
Just because he's doing that does not mean that we don't abide in his chest. We should continue to confess our sin to our high priest. We should continue to go to him even though we trust, at least in our heads, that he has it under control. And if abiding in Christ looks more like laying on the couch covered in crumbs or workaholism that keeps us up till 2 a.m., if it looks more like that than it looks like prayer and confiding in community, then our theology is just masking our insecurities and has not actually settled into our heart. Because when we trust that God is who He says He is and He's going to do what He's going to do, then what do we do? We go to Him. Go to God. Don't get spiritually lazy. Don't get complacent with the idea of the sovereignty of God. Don't neglect your right as sons and daughters of the Most High God to go to Him. Don't neglect the responsibility to help pray earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom come. We've boiled the activity of Christianity down to just mere determinism, meaning that because of Jesus, I don't have to care. But that's okay because He empathizes with me. He gets me. He gets you, and He calls you to do something. Confess your sin. Share the truth about Christ. Pray to God. Abide in Him. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, a hungry man eats though he does not understand the composition of his food, the anatomy of his mouth, or the process of digestion. He lives because he eats. Another far more clever person understands thoroughly the science of nutrition, but if he does not eat, he will die with all his knowledge. There are no doubt many at this hour in hell who understood the doctrine of faith but did not believe. On the other hand, not one who has trusted in the Lord Jesus has ever been cast out, though he may never have been able to intelligently define his faith. Let's eat today. Let's abide more than we just talk about the glories of abiding. Let's get full. Let's become people who yearn to see God move in Dahlonega and at UNG. Let's be people that confess sin to our Creator because He is just, and because of what Christ has done, He will forgive our sin. Let's with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because we do have a great high priest. So, before we go to the table today, before you go and literally eat and abide, go before your high priest in your chair. Confess your sin. Confess that you are more dependent on Him than you ever like to admit. Pray. Take things that you think that you have handled on your own to Him. Your pregnancy, your desire for a new job, your anxiety about work, your relationships, your frustration that He might feel far your perceived lack of purpose. Take it to Him. 
if you need help praying because you don't have the words, we'll have leaders over here who would love to pray with you to help you approach God's throne in Christ. Do not go to the table today without going to Jesus first. Seek Jesus. Pray for those who've hurt you. Forgive those who've trespassed against you as he has forgiven you. If you're here today and you'd say, Andrew, I don't know what I believe about Jesus or any of this priest stuff. We just want to take a moment today and ask you to consider that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. He bore the weight of your sin, your imperfection on the cross, and he buried it in the grave, and he rose to life with the power to present you clean to God. You can be presented clean to God by faith in Christ, by trusting in who he is. If you don't believe that today, we just ask that you'd sit and consider that for a moment while uh, the people who do believe that go and take from the table. There's so many people who would love to walk through that truth with you in here. So let's pray as we, uh, as we move that direction. Father, thank you for our great high priest. Thank you that he was pure. He didn't need the clothes. He didn't need to make sacrifices for himself. He is pure and he is perfect. And every sin that was laid on him is paid for in full. Father, I confess to you today Lord, in front of all these people, that I have been uh, slow to go to you. I've been slow to go to you with my troubles, my frustrations, my anger. Lord, I confess that I'm someone who struggles with anger and doubt. Lord, I pray that you would Remind me of the forgiveness that your son has given us. And so, Lord, as we all go to the table, I pray that you would remind us of the things that you have saved us from, that we would confess our dependence on you. Lord, we're so grateful that your body and your blood are sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to bring us peace with you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen.